Hello and welcome to That HR Podcast by People Management. My name is Emily Burt. And I'm Lauren Brown. And we're here to explore all you need to know about this month in HR, including... The robots are coming. We've all heard it said artificial intelligence will take over. But is HR particularly susceptible to being displaced by technology? We meet the HR director at one of the most glamorous businesses going. And Tim Pointer is back answering one of your queries. I'm Lauren Brown. I'm People Management's newest staff writer. Hooray! And, you know, I've listened to the podcast before and I just had to squeeze on in and be co-presenter. So. so Lauren joined us just after graduating from Cardiff University, where she's just done an MA in journalism, which I did the same thing three years ago. And she's my mentor. I'm not your mentor. That's a terrible uh, thing to say. Help me. That makes me feel very old. The rise of artificial intelligence is one of the most topical concerns in the modern world of work. And our resident expert joining us this month is someone who knows more about this than most. Jeff Wellstead is the author of The Digital Transformation People and founder and CEO at Big Bears Partners Limited. So, Jeff, to kick off, now we talk about artificial intelligence a lot. This is a really big buzzword these days. Artificial intelligence is often kind of portrayed in movies, you know, science fiction movies and things of that nature as being sort of this monstrosity, this uh, aggregate of of, uh, self-learning intelligence that exists in robots, which, of course, then quickly determine that human beings are inefficient and need to be wiped off the face of the earth. And in truth, you know, that is not kind of what we're talking about in terms of in terms of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. What we're simply doing in terms of, of, of artificial intelligence is really kind of riding a pyramid up to the top, the top being where something is purely artificial intelligent. The base of the pyramid is really around sort of the data that is being generated by multiple different systems in your organization. If you can imagine like a, an enterprise resource planning software that does a bit of CRM, a bit of HR, a bit of finance, a bit of mm. this, a bit of that. And basically, all of that is generating really huge amounts of data. Now, the question is, what do you do with that stuff? And typically, within each one of those silos, it's generating some level of insight around you know, patterns emerging and so forth. Great. The next layer above that is when you get into things like data analytics, which is now taking those uh, disparate silos and the information coming from there and basically start to mesh it up together and start to explore and start to experiment with causation uh, or correlation. Does this and this, when it happens, create that? The next layer above that is what they call machine learning. Okay. Okay. And machine learning is really basically pattern matching. It's this notion of, look, if this and this equals that, that's interesting because I'm now, as a computer, starting to see patterns emerge in mm-hmm. terms of you know, things that are starting to, to develop. And it then gives the human beings something to really kind of you know, interrogate and kind of get down into to say, what if we experiment stimuli with th- this particular activity taking place? Let's track what happens you know, over the course of that. Artificial intelligence is the ultimate layer of that, which then says, I appreciate the patterns that you basically brought together, and I'm going to mesh all of those patterns together, mm-hmm. and I'm going to start giving you back some things that you haven't thought about or arguably couldn't put together on your own. And that really is the essence of artificial intelligence at the moment. What I, I actually, my first encounter with AI around that was 
all the way back in 2012 and I was a student in California and I uh, downloaded this tweet add-on for my Twitter account <laughs> and it was it was like very very basic and the idea was that it, it started charting all of my tweets and um, it was called lives on that's what it was called and it was a Twitter bot that would um, look at my tweeting for years and years and the idea was it would do it for my whole lifetime and start to pick up like the odd word that I used a lot and phrases and that sort of thing mm. and it as I was doing this it, in sideline it started generating random tweets and learning to mimic my thought patterns and that sort of thing. And the overall concept of this app was that if I ever die... Assuming it's been following me on my Twitter feed for like 50 years, it will be able to perfectly generate my voice patterns, my speech, and just tweet indefinitely for me. I think me. there's a Black Mirror episode yeah, of, like about this, where when somebody passes away, you can yeah. get the, all of their memories and every video they've had on Facebook and generate like voice patterns yeah. and get them back. And it's horrifying. Absolutely. <laughs> and that was like definitely my first encounter with with AI, and it made me afraid of it. And I think there is there's there's quite a lot of like, if not fear, certainly trepidation around mm. this new tech. What would you say are some of the biggest or the most common misconceptions that you encounter when people are kind of talking to you about this? I think one of the biggest common misconceptions is the fact that people are assuming that all artificial intelligence is what they call autonomous intelligence, right. which mm. is the stuff you see in Terminator. Autonomous intelligence, we are far away from. If you can imagine the level of com uh, computational power it takes, I mean, you could do things like pattern recognition around, mm. you know, tweets. Which is what that tweet bot was. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Around Facebook, around, you know, various entries, LinkedIn and things of that nature, mm. and possibly kind of generate <laughs> patterns that mimic, not necessarily you know, augment yeah. your personality and your particular preferences, that's kind of maybe where we're at today. So we're not there yet, especially when it comes to business. And the reason for that is, is that if you look at the different data sets that are coming from the various business intelligence tools that we've got today, that stuff is hugely inaccurate and often driven by you know, kind of randomized patterns of human behavior. So if you're going to rely on that as mm -hmm. sort of data points to then go up that pyramid I talked about earlier, well, good luck with your artificial intelligence, because if it mimics that mess, then you're not going to end up in a good place. And that's a real struggle for businesses nowadays, is this notion of, look, you know, we're presuming all of this data mm -hmm. is pure, and it's, and it's brilliant, and it's accurate, and it's cleansed and it's ready for AI. It is not. So we're actually more talking about things like assisted intelligence and augmented intelligence. That's about where we're at, right? And it's gonna take a long old time for this notion of, of purely autonomous intelligence to come about. So I think that's a huge uh, you know, kind of misconception that people have. We have also seen things like self-driving cars crashing. This is going to be a long time coming, but there is going to be, I think, I would imagine for the moment, a lot of human error still. Yeah, and I guess off the back of what you just said, you know, we're a long way away from autonomous intelligence. And I think a lot of people think that it's going to be, you know, sitting next to Wally at work and having robotic conversations. Off the back of everything you just said, how is artificial intelligence going to make its presence felt in the workplace? Yeah, so I, I recently attended an interesting conference. So some would call it interesting. It was, it was, a, true, it was a true geek fest, uh, if I'm honest. I'm sure um, it was very interesting. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was for me, for sure. Um, on the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in finance, it was a lot of folks in the room who were basically building models and algorithms around predictive activities that could actually help banks and traders predict the patterns that people would kind of engage in in terms of where they would actually buy or sell a stock or a commodity and how the market might go up or down as a result of arguably 
hundreds of inputs that came from all over the place. So take commodities as an example. Fascinating, right? You're talking about wheat. So the things that go into figuring out whether or not you're going to have a good wheat crop in this coming year have everything to do with weather, have, has everything to do with you know farm machinery. It has everything to do with transportation routes and all sorts of things, the demand uh, for that stuff or not. Loads and loads of externalities and variables that have to get crunched by an algorithm to then give you a sense of, just a sense of, it may go this way. Having said that, there is a huge human component to that that says, mm. Mm, yeah, having said that, I also know how the other traders are going to behave around this, things that they might not necessarily know, like trade wars kicking off left and right as they are today, other geopolitical challenges, war, all sorts mm. of things. So it takes a human being to kind of put that all into a context that makes sense. Just to go right back to, to small things, we do have evidence of, of tiny bits of HR, things like Alexa and yeah. Google, and we've got chatbots now, which people use for things like customer service. So they are starting to kind of creep in. But I would imagine that a lot of the time, this isn't what people think of. These are the consumer facing iterations of artificial intelligence. And when I ask you that question of what it's going to look, what is it going to look like in the workplace? I think, you know, these are kind of very accessible versions of what we might expect of AI. But what are the kind of almost hidden or unseen ways that it might start affecting the workplace? Well, excellent question. Right. So let's talk about HR related things, because that's mm. clearly kind of where we're at at this point. So to your point, yes, we're seeing things like chatbots starting to emerge that are helping people, for instance, through the early stages of the recruiting process. All of those things can be automated because they're quite repetitive processes. And typically, you can predict more or less what the kinds of questions are going to be raised. And it gets people right up until the point where suddenly a human would, you know, would naturally come in and yeah. say, hey, I'm a human. Well, Welcome to the company. It's really brilliant to be talking to you. Let's have a bit of a chat. Yeah. Now, other kind of interesting augmented intelligences would be, for instance, around the use of tools like Textio in terms of kind of trying to understand based on the words used both in the job description that you sent out and and the resume and the CV that that person sent in, what kind of pattern matches are you seeing? And importantly, you know, what kinds of biases are you seeing in terms of the way that person talks about themselves? So it kind of removes gender bias. Uh, it raises the issue around, does this person lead personally and take ownership of things? Or do they, do they use the word we a lot? So there's some augmented intelligences around that throughout the entire course of the employee life cycle, you can add tools to kind of do all sorts of things around that. So literally from recruitment to onboarding, from onboarding into team dynamics, mm -hmm. to performance management, and then linking performance management into development, uh, to then career opportunities and options, to pay and reward. You can use a lot of augmented intelligences basically to inform are you kind of in the right space in terms of uh, in, in terms of tolerances that you've built in? Um, is this person ready for a promotion? Should I start talking to this person about their next move? So that's kind of where I'm, we're starting to see tools come in, and there are arguably loads that are kind of doing this. The problem is they're disparate. They're typically not connected, and they're not giving you, again, anything close to this notion of an autonomous intelligence in terms of looking across all these systems and giving you a bigger picture. So it is happening, but it's happening slowly. So you just mentioned recruitment. To what extent would you trust AI when it comes to recruitment? So if an algorithm told you that you'd objectively found the best employee, the perfect employee, but you didn't necessarily warm to that individual, would you suspend your human judgment? Like how are we meant to work in collaboration with these technologies? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Computers will again figure out patterns. And all they're going to do is look at that person's CV. They're going to look at that person's possibly scan the internet, 
and kind of find out all the stuff that's out there about that individual, including scarily things like Twitter and Facebook and yeah. everything else, and kind of give you a sense of, look, is this person culturally connected you know, to your mission and to your vision as you have articulated it back? And it might be able to come up with some pretty high levels of match in terms of that using machine learning and say, you know, this person is a 95% match for the role that you've put out there. But do not forget that that role was generated by a human being, right? And that CV was generated and all of that internet garbage and noise was generated by human beings, typically in contexts that the computer is not applying. What you get back is, again, a piece of information. I think that's a really interesting topical thing we've just we've just touched on there because human bias and unconscious bias is a massive issue in the workplace today and we see a lot about it we see things like you know racial biases in in the recruitment process and companies are doing things like um, blind CVs Mm -hmm. and stuff like that because they know that a guy called John Smith is more likely to get a job interview than a guy called Muhammad right you know it's it's rubbish and it's something that we need to be addressing yep Um, but it's interesting to say whether you know if 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 AI and people talk about tech and, and these kind of blind CVs and these processes as the solution to that, but it might not necessarily be the be-all and end-all. So I suppose it's going to be about making a call on judgment about recognising what that gut feeling is. Is it a conscious or a conscious bias that is a toxic one, or is it just human instinct? You're spot on, and and it's important to think about this stuff, right? Because this raises the question that you were both just talking about, which is this notion of what is the human being's new role Mm -hmm. in the use of these tools? So the tool should never be seen as the ultimate solution. It is not. And I think this feeds into that perception a lot of people have and that fear that Emily was talking about earlier of, well, they're taking our jobs. And actually, it sounds to me like what we're discussing is leading to a kind of, you know, a collaborative approach rather than one kind of taking over the other. So well, importantly, speak. you know what it's doing? It's lifting our game up and finally giving us the time and the headspace to focus on that stuff. So it's basically taking away a lot of the core administration, governance, compliance, ugh, the stuff that frankly just drag us, drags us down and gives us the headspace to say, ah, good. I don't have to worry about going through 600 CVs on my own and getting it wrong. Another big concern is what this is going to mean for people in low-skilled roles. I think when that, that concern that the robots are coming for our jobs is Really, it's like very much weighted towards these sectors, these areas and these skill groups. And with good reason, because while we talk about how much AI is going to free us up to be productive and to be um, more thinking about it, ultimately, I would imagine that there is some group that is going to lose out from this automation. You know what? You're right. And, And it's happened with every major industrial revolution. So back in the 1800s, you know, farmers suddenly weren't a thing. Whereas weirdly, prior to that, 80% of the world were farmers Mm. and farming was the thing. And then suddenly we had to get smart about efficiencies around that stuff and everybody else moved to the city. And there was a big panic about the fact that, oh, my God, you know, as these mills and these machi- the machinery around these mills gets smarter, it's going to start taking away people's jobs. And it does in the near term. But the question becomes one of what do you then reconfigure yourself for? And I think that's really interesting. That's, that is such a salient argument and a loud argument being had, again, with the likes of Elon Musk, whereby, you know, they're saying we need to think about things like universal income how it is we're going to look after these people because otherwise we are going to have a societal mess. We're going to have unemployment like we've never seen it before and it's going to be in a class of folks who don't know how to skill themselves up. So suddenly a lot of companies are waking up to that. And that's an HR decision. 
decision as well. It was that's, a massive that's, one. That's yeah. a human resources facing decision. Yeah, and I was going to ask, so obviously like, you know, forward thinking companies like that who are preparing their workers for the next step. You said a lot about, you know, we're leveling up and, you know, we have to start thinking about how we're going to adapt. And what do you think we can be doing now or workers can be doing now to try and almost ready ourselves for that change? The good news is this, education abounds. It's shocking what's online and available for either cheapest chips or free, right? So I'm constantly pinging this stuff out on LinkedIn, but there was, as, as an example, there were eight courses being offered by some of the top universities across the land around data analytics, and they were all free. And they're basically trying to pull you in. They're trying to kind of get you in there to have a have an experience and give you proper certification at the first and second tier levels so that you then possibly get hungry for more. Even still, the courses are cheap. I'm talking like 60 quid, but you've got to make time for it. Now, it has been said that human resources are more susceptible to automation through artificial intelligence than, say, other sectors. Would you say that it's in more or less danger than other business functions such as finance or marketing, or if it's all just kind of going to apply broadly? The determiner, determinant of, of that particular challenge is how much of your work is repeatable, how much of your work is administrative-based, how much of your work is predictably constant. And the more that your work centers around that stuff, and arguably there's a load of it in finance, there's a load of it in marketing, there's a load of it in possibly too much of it in HR. Any one of those processes that we've been covering off as humans that, again, are, could be easily programmed into a machine basically are susceptible. I was just at a, a Cognition X uh, conference not long ago. And there were a couple of experts talking about what percentage of the work uh, human resources are currently doing that potentially could be taken over by, you know, artificial intelligence. And they reckon it was somewhere between 24 and 30 percent. Wow. That's a right? lot. That's how that's But like, it's all the stuff we hate doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, thank God. Take what, note, you know, listeners. what's taking so long? <laughs> so I'm, I'm thrilled, frankly. If I'm rocking up to work every day, I'd like to be bringing my brain with me. So you do believe that this is something that really is going to free HR up to become more strategic and to do these kind of big concept things that we hear a lot about, but don't necessarily see executed in the workplace very much today? Yeah, listen, I've looked at this 10 different ways. And without question, this this is the augmentation we've all been looking for. This is the lift and shift out of the weeds, out of the paperwork realm, into the space where we have to start thinking differently about what we're offering the company. You look at like what Laszlo Bach did at Google as the head of people operations. I'm sorry, what did Laszlo Bach do at Google? So, so basically, yeah. when, he talks, when he talks about how he set HR up at Google, it was a very different landscape and a very different approach um, right. than every other traditional HR department. He basically said, look, it's a third, a third, and a third. The first third are basically management consultants, okay? The second third are data scientists, and the last third are business analysts. I'm like, wow, so where are the, you know, where's the person who kind of runs the recruitment process? Where's, you know, those kinds of things. And those, those functions are there, but highly automated. And the level of data they were kicking back to the senior folks at Google trying to make decisions about what product areas they should be moving into, and do we have that talent? Do we have those skills? Can we make this move? That's the conversation we should be having with, you know, HR and, and senior management. If, or, you know, indeed when our workplace becomes increasingly technological, you know, the question remains, if artificial intelligence makes a mistake or if a programming bias does occur, who is then held accountable? Mm. 
Yeah. You know, who's at fault if, if something messes up? Because if, you yep. know, the more and more we automate things, and it where does, does accountability happen. lie? Here's my counsel and advice on that. And it's important because the bottom line is if you go out as an HR executive and you buy a piece of software and you deploy that piece of software in your organization, you own the consequences of the use of that software and the behavior around that software. So my guidance is simply this. It's important to know how the software works. But if the sales engineer can't explain what the algorithm does and the way it thinks, for instance, as as an ATS, an applicant tracking system, the way that applicant tracking system filters out people and accepts people in, such that potentially it gives you then some strong decision-making capability, you got yourself a problem because it might very well start giving you you know, very biased information. A couple of examples of that very quickly. One is going back just about two months ago in terms of online recruitment and job boards, <clears throat> it was found that a particular job board was programmed to look at people somewhere between the age of 25 and 38. Everybody else should be more or less excluded. That was at Facebook. That was at Google. I mean, these were job boards that were being used by some very, very big companies. And somebody dug into it and found out somebody had programmed an age bias into the selection process and was just completely ignoring huge swaths. That's illegal, by the way. Wow. Of course, the thing there is, in theory, that if you get into those specifications and you become, you know, very go into details, you can do things like you can say no mothers. No, yeah. no people who have children, for example, or no or people disabilities, from certain or, disabilities, yeah. class, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, so you have to watch out for things like that. And, and to know that your system basically was set up that way is critical. So you've got to have diversity in implementing you've got, these yeah, systems. Yeah. Workplace culture has to be flexible. Yeah. And if you're kind of using a program which, you know, takes the temperature of what your culture's like now and try to hire on that basis, that's obviously got downfalls. It does. It has some it has some wonderful, you know, kind of genius attached to that. You'd think logically that would make sense. But to your point, there might be hidden things in mm-hmm. your culture that really you want to kind of weed out and drive away. So, you know, it's this notion of, look, garbage in, garbage out. I mean, that has never changed. It will never change. And I think that's the way you have to think about it in terms of systems like that. You sound, you know, very positive about the effects that, you know, increased technology in the workplace can have. You know, overall, what are you most excited about in the world of artificial intelligence? What do you think will be the most important benefits it brings to people's lives? Two things I get excited about. On one hand, from a systemic side, I get excited about now companies coming out with integrative capabilities. This notion of taking all of these disparate parts and actions and so forth that that various different software vendors are providing and putting that together in a very clever way that becomes seamless to me and starts to feel for me like, wow, there is some wonderful cognitive machine out there that knows as much about me as I need to know about myself and this work environment and how to navigate it and how to do well with it. And man, when that moment comes and it just starts to feel like it all fits into place and it doesn't feel awkward or clunky or, oh, you got that wrong, geez, Louise, that's a horrible system. You know, when that starts to feel really smooth, I get I get really excited about. The other thing I get excited about is the way that systems are are going to start talking to each other to start basically driving integrated and augmented decision making. So HR talking to finance, talking yeah. to marketing, talking mm-hmm. to sales, talking to Jira as an example around um, you know your project management, and basically starting to get smart about this is the overall health quotient of the organization. 
our software teams are stressing out because the leadership is not giving them the right direction. The teams are becoming potentially ineffectual. We're having people basically go off on sick leave that shouldn't go off on sick leave. We're now going to have to go hire some more people. We potentially predict X amount of attrition coming up. Could you imagine if you rocked up and mm. like turned your laptop on and that was your dashboard for the morning? You're like, bam. Okay, here's the work that's now set in front of me that I have to go start, you know, kind of chunking down on and improving. I think a lot of the frustration we have in business right now is we don't always know where stuff is broken. So these are the things that frankly keep us up at night. If we had deep insight into that, for me, that would be magic. So it sounds like it's kind of laying a foundation, almost like a, a cushion. So you don't have to worry about these precarious changes that could happen. It just takes it takes the uncertainty out of it. It takes the mystery out of what's happening. And it gives me insights that I've never had before. And it's not dystopian. It's actually really important because as an employee, for instance, I would much rather that my manager and my manager's manager had insight to the fact that my team really is ineffective. But I'm afraid to say anything about it because the guy running that team is a miserable, you know, something or other. <laughs> and if I say anything, I'm going to get fired. Yeah, you know, what I mean? so I mean, that kind of stuff is is really powerful. I, I am excited about that future. Wonderful. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So it's time now for our interview. Emily, who did you go and speak with this month? So this month I went to meet the people director in one of the UK's most glamorous industries. Zoe Walters has a job that plenty of HR professionals would kill for. People director at Condé Nast International, the publishing house responsible for titles like Vogue, Vanity Fair, Tatler and GQ. I wanted to find out what it's like managing people during a time of huge change for the magazine industry. What would you say? Have you run into anyone famous in the lifts yet? I haven't. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say that before I worked at Adidas, I worked at Diesel. Yeah. And uh, I, I had quite a lot of interactions with Channing Tantum for Magic Mike. No, <laughs> really. That's my yes. dream. That's my absolute dream. <laughs> yeah, and so I've seen the Britney Spears, the Kylies, the, you know, just not actually in the lift, but yeah. passing. Around and so about. Pharrell Williams, Rita Ora, oh. Adidas, they're, they're, they move around, David Beckham. Wow. So you get quite a lot of celebrities that you see. So Condé Nast hosts some of the biggest titles in the magazine publishing industry. We've got Vogue, we've got Vanity Fair, Glamour, Tatler, just those classic, classic titles. But the entire publishing industry is being now disproportionately affected by digitisation. And these glossy print magazines are, you know, they are having to change and respond to that. So what can you tell me about how the business is reacting to this move online? And maybe actually before we get into that, what does digitisation actually mean mm. in this context? So that's a great question to start with. So digitalization is a mindset. Mm. Digitalization enables speed and agility to react to what the consumer wants. So if you think about years ago where we didn't have the, the Googles of the world didn't exist. So pre-2000, yeah. which is for some people not thinkable they can't get back that, <laughs> yeah. that long but prior to that you used to have an audience reach which was grown significantly through advertising campaign driven and it took you mm. months to get to what you can get to in seconds yeah. now via your twitters your instagram the platform has remarkably changed our environment has remarkably changed and i don't think that we cognitively as human beings have caught up with that revolution yet mm. so we don't naturally think about what does it mean to be flexible to be agile to be adaptable and cognitively we haven't changed the environment has but as humans we haven't yeah. so even though we look at generational gaps and look at their behavior 
matter. And that can tell us some things. If you look at now, a, you know, a 15-year-old's mindset versus a 40-year-old's mindset, there's yeah. versus a 60, 70. So I'm thinking of children, parents, mm. grandchildren. That whole thinking is not just linear anymore. It's, it, it, there's a whole complication in that. So yeah. I think that digitalization in the workplace means different things to different people. Mm. Because I think we think digitalization is a mobile phone. It's a piece of hardware. That's the enabler for us to be digital. Yeah. Um, and if you kind of look at the more of the practices and processes, clicking a button to enable data, you know, one button instead of trailing through reports and mm-hmm. grasping every straw you can to get that data, that's you know the the technology that sits that should sit beside digitalization yeah. as an enabler. Digitalization itself is all about the mindset and speed to react to what the consumer wants or our world that we live in, not just the consumer. We're all consumers, we're all employers, we're all fathers, daughters, sons, dads, mums, parents, you know, I mean, all of these things. So it goes far-reaching. It's our universe and it's not going to stop. Now, with a business model like Condé Nast that is, is shifting and is responding to this increasingly digital world as much as Condé Nast is at the moment, what additional pressures would you say this puts on you as a human resources department, as a human resources mm. professional? Do you think, I would guess more broadly, do you think human resources professionals are ready for this shift? So I'll go to your second question first, which is, are we ready? Yeah. I think that we can be ready if we make choices that make our lives easier. So I think when you get to a certain level, and I'll speak for myself mm. here, ego plays a huge part of an enabling. So I think if you have the if you have a less ego, and I think we all have one, to what extent we show it is mm. another story. But if you kind of think of being more of the servant leadership sort, servant leadership meaning, you know, if you're at a buffet, you've got, you are the last person to eat, you're making sure that everybody else is well nourished, refreshed Mm. and able to do their job. So you give everybody the tools that they need in order to do the job and and almost like you you unblock, any roadblocks are in the way, you enable Mm -hmm. and you have this kind of more servant leadership type. It's more collaborative and it's much more about um, unlocking the potential in others that absolutely know more than you. But again, it comes back to that ego if you're allowing and choosing that to be the case. A lot of traditional HR generalists and directors may not agree with that statement, may not agree because their worlds may be different. I think Mm. public sector, private sector, depends who you work in to what you're institutionalised around. Are we ready? I think some teams are ready. Um, I think that we can do more. However, depends if the company puts HR as on the roadmap. If they allow HR to have a seat at the table mm. and they're involving them at much earlier decisions, then you're going to be much more ready. If they're not recognised as having that stronger voice, then I think businesses will really suffer. Do you think that is one of those key pressures and challenges, is that, that need to get onto that board level and to be taken seriously as a strategic arm of the business? So how I see it is this, if you look at a traditional people strategy, which yeah. would be mission and vision, yeah. purpose, then we go into the business strategy and what we're going to do, mm. and then we lastly come to how we're going to do that, which is what I call the head and heart piece. We know what we need to do as an organisation, the how is what we do through yeah. our employees to achieve that. Let's flip that upside down and put employee experience at the top mm. of the, the tree. Let's, let's say that we reverse it round. 
you put the people experience at the top because the people drives culture and community. If I was to tell you that, I'm sure if you could read The Independent in Jan- uh, February, March, there was a whole piece around loneliness. The third yes. of our country is lonely. So this community drive, this community spirit is what perhaps is the pulse of what we need to be capitalising on. So what you get in social networks online and this... I call it bleating. People bleat on Facebook about yeah. their problems and their <laughs> life and all these things. It's almost like if, if you can channel that in a right way, you drive that engagement through community. Mm. And that will then bring the right people that would speak the same values as you. So as long as they're cohesively aligned, that's that whole value piece. And when it comes to putting your people first and developing a people strategy that, that has that at the very forefront of you know your business strategy and all the rest of it, What steps can you take as an HR professional then to prepare and enable your employees for the disruptions that that are going to come in the future? And what role does things like kind of in-house learning? When you drive a culture that is inclusive and trusted, anything is possible. When you go into conflict, when you go into challenge, and let's say corporate conflict and challenge, it's not physical challenge, Mm -hmm. it's more around the ideas, the ideology, the collaboration. You want something for somebody and it's not their priority, but it's yours. It's that culture and trust that allows people and those relationships. We must not get our heads buried in mobile um, devices. We need to come away from that and just build human-to-human experiences. If you look at any consumer marketing campaign, which is children, pets, dogs being mistreated, mm. we're all crying on our sofas and we're ready to pick up the phone <laughs> and make a donation. Yeah. So that's what you've got to touch, the heart and the minds of the people. So once you've done that, you can then be ready for whatever the future brings because you're united, you're, you have this ability to be able to speak openly, frankly, and to say, you know, this is where the future's going, this is where we need you to be, and we're taking you on that journey with us. So as we get ready for disruption, and we are in disruption, it's going to continue, I see more so now than ever, you need to have an engagement tool, you need to know what your employees are asking for and telling, telling you. This would lead me to what I would say is employee insights. So as a consumer, any most organisations know about their consumer intimately, where they shop, what they do, what time they eat, how many children they have, mm. where they live, all of these things. We are fastidious and absolutely obsessed with getting this type of data on consumers. But what if we did the same for employees? What if we had exactly the same so we knew what turned them on, turned them off, that we can then build products and tools specifically to mm. talk to the hearts and the minds of those employees? There's a correlation of having data that enables you to be very focused, otherwise HR can be doing everything, being everywhere and nowhere, and that's the risk, because digital will pull the speed, you need a great foundation and to have very good focus so you know what you need to deliver. That is an ingredient for me that's really vital. Condé Nast and and the publishing industry is always going to be a business that is rooted in creativity. You know, I would imagine for a lot of your employees, whether they are in print, in publishing, or somewhere else in the industry, it's at the heart of their daily processes. So what are the main HR challenges around that? How do you balance structure with inspiration and build that into your kind of people culture? I think the question that comes to my mind is, is what is creativity? Because I think it depends on what role you sit in as to Mm. how creative you are. Because if you think about the traditional departments like finance, HRIT, what is creativity meaningful to them? 
versus editorial staff, glossy magazine layouts, the content, the editorial. When you look at creativity, it means slightly different things in different areas. If you allow people the framework to be who they are and to Mm. do what they do without forcing instruction and rules on them, but more about inspiring and creating the space for those individuals to go do what they do best, that in itself will breed and bring creativity. However, I would say the environment is massively important. Where we've been making a lot of progress is on building workspaces to enable people to collaborate, to foster innovation, to be creative. And I have a quick plant analogy that I'll share with you. Oh, please do. So if you look at the world of plants, they are thousands, millions of plants in our world, and they all have different environments that they flourish in. So if we take a shrub a cactus, an orchid, for example. Mm. A shrub is very weather-hardy, is green all year round, can take sun, shade, rain, sleet, snow. Not for any extended periods, but they can weather Mm. the seasons. If you look at an orchid, it specifically wants to be in a moist, perhaps shady, humid condition with minimal water, you know, so you don't drench these plants. And then you look at cactus, which it survives completely in a desert environment where there is barely any water. So if you kind of know what plant you are, and this comes to knowing self, Mm. if you know what plant you are, go plant yourself in the conditions that you thrive in best, and then you motivate yourself. It's all all chemistry from there on. Mm. One final question then before we wrap up. What are the traits that it takes to be an HR professional in an environment like this one? And in the eight weeks since you joined Condé Nast, um, what have you done to immerse yourself in this culture, in this environment? Publishing is new for me. Um, I have a travel background, fashion, sports. So I think diversification of, of other industries makes you very blended in terms of dealing with different characters and different cultures. When you are at a board level or you are integrated or interacting with there's always going to be ego and that is no matter Mm. where you go so learning to manage that without reacting to it is one of the key drivers for me because there's actually a message that's not being said in those words so I think kind of intuition comes along with reading between lines and kind of getting more questions around tell me why you think that way Mm. what's the idea behind that what are you thinking what's the end goal HR practitioners could really use if they haven't already doing NLP which is neuro-linguistic programming and psychology because I think that's our future Mm. we're not going to be dealing with the administration like we have to add value we're going to be more consultancy more advisory and not judging Mm. so it's digging a little deeper and spending the time to do that on the eight weeks I've been um, immersing myself is really understanding the culture the culture is quite fascinating because you do have a blend of print and digital in Condé Nast International and that brings about different skill sets and and certain uh, maybe expectations around in in an editorial world what's that's nothing new for us that's something that's been ongoing for quite some years the difference is is how do we bring that editorial to life I'm understanding the print side because I understand the digital side quite well and I think that's the key because print is not going to go anywhere Mm. it might play a different role than what it's had in the past it's a choice we live in a convenient world Mm. and it's just allowing our consumer to have that choice of what what do they want so for me it's more about 
being empowered and liberated by what we do and being a part of that culture. So what can I do to help the business in order to survive this transformative time? To end the show, we turn as ever to Tim's pointers with Tim Pointer. Please welcome our agony uncle. He's the Mary Berry to your soggy-bottomed CV. It's Tim Pointer. Ahoy. Ahoy, matey. How are your summer holidays going? (laughs) Very good link. I can see where this is going. Yes, it is true. I'll be messing about on boats this month. Alongside the occasional HR qualification, I'm a qualified skipper. So I'll be sailing around the Greek Ionian Islands and trying not to lose members of my family over the side. There you go. Who knew? And is there anything uh, you would say that aligns between human resources and captaining a ship? Any common ground you can find there? I think retention is very important. (laughs) Good a bush. (laughs) Very good. Yes, keep, keep the water out, retain your crew. Exactly right. This month, we are talking to a listener who's got a self-employment dilemma. They are wondering whether to jump ship from their full-time job into something that is more about them. So they say, I have recently been thinking about self-employment as a possible career option. Currently, I work as an accounts manager and handle all human resources and payroll requirements in a small, medium enterprise. I'm not sure if I should just take the plunge or stay where I've been for the past 17 years. Tim, help me. (laughs) I think you should take the Father Christmas approach. Make a list. Okay, yep. Why are you seeking to change? Put all the points that you think this change in career is going to give you down one side and all the points that you really enjoy about what you're doing down the other. So you've got your, this is what I want to retain, this is what I want to gain. Second point, talk to people who are already doing this. Understand what the experience is really like. We always think the grass is greener. So we have to go over there and talk to the people who are already in this place. What works for you? What's different for you if they've come from a point of employment before? Third point, Career Coach by uh, Kareen Mills. Mm -hmm. Um, Really interesting book, just helping you think about how you're going through the stages of your career and what's unique about you, what you can market, brand, take forward differently within it all. And thirdly, really go through your business plan. Because even if you're thinking, you may believe that your number one client is your current employer, but really work through what that will look like. If your business is dependent on your current employer being your number one customer and your only customer, that is a high-risk option. So really think through what that's going to look like. Put your business plan together. Understand the different components that running your own business require in terms of the support you're going to need. You need the right accountant, the registration, all of the pieces in terms of your preparation, your insurances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Put those together, really cost it out so that you're looking at a total bottom-up approach as to what you're gaining. Understand the difference it makes for your life, but also to your finances, Mm. and then you'll be really getting into it. By really engaging in that conversation, then you'll have a much harder set of facts to evaluate whether it's the right choice for you. It's a very nice prospect self-employment. You know, I think I'm sure that lots of us would like to be able to work for ourselves and to have the freedom and the flexibility that that might entail. But it can also be hard graft and it's not something that you should necessarily go into if you haven't carefully considered all of your options first. Many people really underestimate the amount of time that they need to spend on business development. Mm. 
sales do you have the sales the commercial skills to go out and to develop your business and to create the pipeline of opportunities which are going to sustain it if you have a question for the next edition of tim's pointers you can head over to our website or email us in confidence at pmeditorial at haymarket.com And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Thanks to Jeff Wellstead, Zoe Walters, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and of course on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Feel free to rate us and leave your nicest comments. My name is Emily Burt. I'm Lauren Brown. And the producers were Matt Hill and Chica Ayres at Rethink Audio. And for the next episode, we'll be back. back.